Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All The Wiser. I'm Kimmy Culp. All The Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I have combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with Nora McInerney. Nora is a mom with really cool tattoos. She also happens to be a podcast host, author, and sought-after public speaker. She's a change maker who is reframing the way people think about love, loss, and grief. It all started when Nora miscarried her second baby, lost her dad to cancer, and then her husband, Aaron, died from a brain tumor. This all happened within weeks of each other. While Aaron was dying, Nora wrote about her life on a blog, My Husband's Tumor. And before he died, they co-wrote his ridiculously funny obituary, which went viral. In today's conversation, Nora walks us through the days, weeks, and months that followed. Founding the Hot Young Widows Club and what you should actually do when someone you know is going through something really, really terrible. She sugarcoats nothing, and I think you will find her raw, real, and very funny. Here's today's interview with Nora McInerney. Hi, Nora, and welcome to All the Wiser. Before we get started, I just want to say in researching for our conversation today, I listened to your podcast, Terrible, thanks for asking, and it is so well done and funny, and I think a lot of our listeners will love it, so I'm going to link to it in the show notes so people can check it out, but congratulations, it's it's really awesome. Oh, thank you. Um, so I'm going to have you introduce yourself. I'm Nora McInerney. I am an author and podcast host and writer and uh, person who, I guess, all the roads in my life lead to honest conversations about uncomfortable topics. And that's what brings us here today. Yes. So, um, and, and I've learned again in digging into all your platforms, we've really created is this space, which is reaching millions where you're talking about hard stuff, beautiful stuff, ugly stuff. And I think it's so been interesting to me because I think we're still in this space of Instagram, Pinterest filter lives and people are so attracted to what you're doing. Where where do you think that comes from and why do you think people are resonating so much with the conversations that you're having? Well, I think because they're they're just a fact of life. And they're an eventuality for everybody at some point, and we all know that, but until it actually arrives at our doorstep, until something terrible happens to us or to somebody we love, 
we do tend to believe that bad things are things that happen to other people until all of a sudden we are the other people. And there's just so many ways that life can get hard and really bring you to your knees. And um, it comes for everybody eventually. So I think that some people are here for it because they've been there. And some people are here for it because they know they will be eventually. Speaking of bringing you to your knees, this whole career, sort of where you stand today, started um, with you on your knees at an epically horrible year in 2014. For those listeners who have not heard your story, can you share with those who don't know what 2014 and the years leading up to it were in your life? Well, in 2010, I fell in love with a man named Aaron. And in 2011, we found out he had brain cancer. And that year we got married. A year later, we had a baby. And on our, um, what would have been our third wedding anniversary, uh, I was at his funeral. He died of brain cancer and he died six weeks after my father died of cancer. And my father died five days after I miscarried my second pregnancy with Aaron. So it was a lot all at once and a lot of different kinds of loss. And prior to that, Aaron and I had both worked in advertising. We were really average, moderately successful people who worked in the marketing world. And our lives were really, really good and very easy. Very easy. Tell me about meeting Aaron and falling in love with him. I met Aaron when I had moved back to Minnesota. I'd been living in New York City, which Aaron always loved to make fun of me for. Like, oh, did you know Nora used to live in New York? Oh, wow. <laughs> She's so special. But I had I'd moved home and I was out with my cousins, who also happened to be basically my only friends at the time. And this man walked up to me and he said, oh, you're Nora McInerney. And I thought, yeah. And who are you? And it, I, I, it clicked after a minute that he was a guy that I followed on Twitter. And this is, you know, Twitter in 2010 was a time where you would follow people you didn't really know. And um, it, it really felt like kind of a small town in a way. And here was this guy who I followed on Twitter. And I knew that he had worked with people I knew, but I didn't really know him. And he was really funny. And he was standing in front of me. And he had come there to meet me. He'd come to this art opening that we were at. And I spent the whole night talking to him. And then he asked me out and then we were just together. And you had the diagnosis and I believe you knew it was terminal when you guys decided to get married and to start a family. Walk me through those conversations. A year after we met, Aaron had a seizure at work and he ended up in the hospital and they found he had a brain tumor and we didn't know what it was. Um, I mean, we're just hoping for the best. Like, oh, it's nothing. It's just a, uh, huh, just, it's nothing. And I spent the night in the hospital room with him and we'd been talking. We'd been together for a year and we we're in our, he was in his early 30s. I was in my late 20s and we talked about marriage and I, looked at him and I said, I'm going to marry you. Like, 
as soon as you get out of this hospital bed. I don't know what's what's happening, but like nothing has been more clear to me. And he said, you can't marry me now. You can't marry me now. You don't want to be with someone who's going to be sick. And I was like, you're not sick. You're not sick. I love you. And uh, a couple weeks later, we found out that he had brain cancer. We didn't hear the word terminal ever. Um, we heard the word stage four. And we knew from you know the, the one time that I Googled it that there, there's not a cure for brain cancer. But the... Um, it wasn't as if we had said like, well, you're going to die, so we might as well get married. It was more like this thing is happening, but it's not going to be our entire lives. And we're still going to have a life. And part of life for us meant trying to make sure that we had experiences that were important to us, which was getting married and which was having a child. And we did all of that knowing that our future was at best, uncertain, and at worst, um, limited together. And you described in, I think, the book and and in one of the podcasts, those, Ralph was two, your son Ralph was two when Aaron passed away, is that right? He was almost two. Okay, so he had, Ralph is almost two when Aaron passed away, and you described those two years, like cancer, chemo, brain tumor, and all of some of your happiest, where I think so many people would think, oh my gosh, they're in the trenches and they're dealing with cancer and how stressful. And you also talk about a tattoo in reference to that, that you got, I believe, the day before you married. So tell me about those two years and tell us about the tattoo and what it meant during that time. I got the word now tattooed on the inside of my right wrist right before my wedding. And I did that because I have always been a pretty, a person with a certain amount of anxiety and uh, a sort of depressive disposition. And anxiety is about worrying about the future. And depression is often about ruminating about the past. And I didn't want to waste time on either of those things when there was such value in the present moment. And not that the present moment was always, you know, wonderful. So, so thrilling. Sometimes the present moment was like wiping blood from Aaron's brain surgery scar. Sometimes the present moment was really, really difficult, but I did know that when I was in the moment, that those were the moments that I wanted to be present for. And because I am, I'm so easily distracted, I did need to get that tattoo. I did need to get that tattoo right before our wedding. I also needed a something new for my wedding day. And so my something new was a tattoo. And I, I really do think of the time that Aaron and I had together and after we had our son, which was about, you know, a year after our wedding, like those were hard years and they were also probably the best years of my life so far because we had each other and we had so much time to be present with one another. And I had not yet heard the word mindfulness. I had not yet you know, downloaded any meditation apps, nor am I aware if they even existed at that point in time. But 
we were really, really, our, our heads were where our bodies were for most of the part, most of that, most of those years. And it's, our lives were not just cancer, you know, like I, I think when people think of like, oh, the happiest years of your life, oh, did you quit your jobs and travel the world? No, we went to work. We went to work every day. We went to the grocery store. We got in arguments over like the time it took between me requesting the trash be taken out and, and, and then the him taking out the trash, which was always too much time. In my opinion, we had very, very normal lives. And anytime something wasn't actively really bad, like that's a good day. It really, it really made me appreciate the absolute beauty of just a mundane day and a mundane life. So at some point, you and Aaron decided to co-write his obit, which went viral, like really, really viral. So I'm going to read a couple of my favorite lines. So Aaron, age 35, died peacefully at home on November 25th after complications from a radioactive spider bite that led to years of crime fighting and a year-long battle with a nefarious criminal named Cancer, who has plagued our society for far too long. Civilians will recognize him best as Spider-Man and thank him for his many years of service protecting our city. He is survived by his first wife, Gwen Stefani, current wife, Nora, and their son, Ralph, who will grow up to avenge his father's untimely death. So for everyone listening, I'm going to link to the full obit, which you have to read in the show notes. But Nora, whose idea was that? Part of love is is consideration, and we. It's not as if we lived every day being like, "You're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die." But we instead took the time to take care of the things that were important. If he died, and part of that was, you know, getting all of our legal stuff in a row, getting our um, our very small amount of money um, figured out, and part of it was. Uh, making sure that I knew what he would want when he died. And the night that he was, um, that he entered hospice, which, I mean, I thought it was going to be more ceremonial. Like you are now in hospice. No, you just go home pretty much. And you wait for the nurses to kind of show up and teach you how to die. But that night I was like, I don't know. We don't know what the future is. Like this could be years, this could be days, this could be months. I will tell you right now, we told the doctors right away when we met them, we never want to hear a timeline ever. So never give us a timeline. So we truly didn't know. And you do hear about people who are in hospice forever. And then you hear about people like, I mean, my dad technically was on hospice. He went home from the hospital, died that day. He was like, I'm not doing any of this. Like he just shut off. But I didn't want to guess. And I'd written my dad's obituary after he died, as is customary. And I was like, I don't, is this the important thing to put in here? Is this? Who knows? And I didn't want that with Aaron. And we joked around about a lot of stuff. And one of the things is that we had sort of read, when we were like, like not even annoyed with each other, we'd make like this sort of running joke that went back and forth where I'd do something like that would Maybe kind of annoy him, but it would make him laugh. And then he would say, you know, like, oh, Nora McInerney, age, you know, 31, died after leaving the goddamn kitchen cabinets open. Why don't you shut the cabinets? Um, 
And uh, so that's just kind of, that was just sort of like our sense of humor. But I, I, I just told him, we should write this now. Let's just write it now together because I want to make sure that you have a say in it. And so we just sat down and we, we were both people who worked in creative fields and he was just so funny and it was like working on any project together. Like I'd, I'd say something, he'd say something. And we came up with, with what we came up with and I saved it in a file called, I think it was called just in case. And I didn't think that they would print it, but obituaries are not journalism. You pay for it. So it's basically like an ad for your death. You can write whatever you want. And they published it. And it was, all of those things are inside jokes with like ourselves and our friends and our family. And a lot of people liked it because maybe it wasn't so factually true, but it was true to who Aaron was and how he lived and how he wanted to be remembered. And I think that's what resonated with people. So you said that they came in and the hospice nurses taught you basically how to die and how to prepare for death. What does that entail? I mean, I think I'm being a little flippant. They, I mean, they don't know how long it'll be either. So they bring you drugs that you might need and they tell you how to, how to give them. And they kind of assess where you are and they order any medical supplies you might need. And all of a sudden your house is not a house anymore. Now it's a hospital room in your house and everything smells strange. And there are weird plastic dishes in this sort of pukey shade of pink uh, meant for whatever it's meant for. And there's gauze. There's just so many things that smell like a hospital in your home and you don't want any of them. You don't want any of them. You don't want this, this safety bar in your, in your bathtub. Your husband is 35. You don't want this special seat on your toilet. It's just all humiliating and awful. And yet you do it all and you do it because you love this person and because you would do anything to make anything easier on them. But your nurses, your hospice people aren't there with you. They basically they show you some stuff and then they leave and then you call them if you think something's changing and they'll send someone by and maybe order you a hospital bed eventually, order you a wheelchair. You don't know. So you really are, you're really on your own if you do hospice at home. And we had a wonderful hospice team and yet they can't do it for you. So you're doing it. You're doing this this thing that you never, ever ever thought that you would possibly do. You talk about how openly you and Aaron obviously talked about his death and knowing exactly what he wanted, how it would play out and the songs he would play, every single detail. So I'm curious, what were the songs that he wanted you to play? And what is it like to plan your husband's funeral with him. He wanted to play Rainbow Connection by Kermit the Frog. 
That was important. And that's a really beautiful song, actually. And I mean, truly, we didn't, it, it, it wasn't a big conversation. We, you know, I knew the food he wanted, like, uh, he liked cheesecake. That was his favorite dessert. His, his grandfather had worked for Grain Belt Beer. So that was an easy choice. And he didn't want it to be religious and we wanted it to be at night. And he wanted me to not wear black. He wanted me to wear white. And then it was over and we watched TV. And that's what we did. You also said in your book that next to giving birth to your babies, one of your most important and proudest moments in life was holding Aaron when he passed away. What was that like, holding the man you love as he dies? And and what do you remember most about that? Nora? Yeah, I I don't know that I... Sorry. Yeah, I don't know that I want to answer that question in that way. Yeah, we can skip that. Let's let's skip it. We'll just move on. Unless you want to touch on it and you want me to ask it in a different way. It's up to you. I'll say that it made me not afraid of death. And I think there's there's not a world in which I would choose not to be there for that moment. And where I would choose not to be there for anybody that I love because it's I just think it's such a good way to, I don't, it's like, it's so important to be, you cannot have a connection to life. It's very difficult to have a connection to life without having like a connection to death. We're very, very death avoidant culture. You know, we do anything to keep people alive or to stay alive and, Um, And death is not as frightening as I thought that it would be. So at this point, you've lost your dad. You've miscarried your baby and Aaron's died. So you're a 31-year-old widow and as you shared, basically up until now, like you had had a, a, a good life, like a, nothing major happened, a pretty great, happy life. So at this point, how do you even function? Like the next day, how, how do you function? The next day, I'm so hungover. The day after the funeral, I'm so hungover, I can barely walk. Um, and I wake up with like my dress half on, still wearing tights. Ralph has slept at his daycare lady's house. My friend Chelsea's in bed with me like, oh my God, are you still alive? I'm like, barely. And I spend all day (laughs) just trying not to vomit because I got so shit-faced. We had a karaoke after party for the funeral. I remember very little of it. And then once the hangover was cured, the shock set in and... I just sort of went on autopilot. Honestly, I booked a plane ticket to Arizona, which is where Aaron's family lives. And I sat on his sister's couch and I watched Real Housewives and our kids played in the backyard. And I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. And then eventually I felt a burning need to do everything. 
And that's when I, you know, sold, sold a book and when I started a nonprofit and when I started uh, my podcast, I became the, the way that I could avoid grieving was to stay as busy as possible, as opposed to as still as possible. What in hindsight worked and didn't work as far as healing, which during that time, the wake of all that loss? What didn't work was um, drinking. <laughs> like that didn't actually help. Did a lot of that, right? Um, uh, what worked was therapy and actually digging into all that had happened, not just with Aaron's death, but with like him being sick as well. At no point did a medical professional who was seeing Aaron, and obviously he was the patient, so why would they? But nobody had said, maybe you should see someone. And so I hadn't. And I'd been like going so hard and so fast for so long that I didn't even realize how hard all of these years had been. And I'm glad for that. I'm glad that I really enjoyed the time that I had with him. But discovering that I could go and talk to somebody and work through some some of these traumas was really, really transformative. And I, I, in my first book, I was like, why would I go to therapy? I literally say that in the book, like, why would I go to therapy? What are they going to do? Tell me I'm sad. Um, and that, so I, I would like to renounce that point of view and tell everybody to go to therapy. What do you think the biggest misconceptions that people have around grief are? I think that it is just sadness and grief is, Grief's a lot of anger, I would like to say. Like, there is a heavy part of grief that is just rage. And that is, that is a hard to control rage and hard to like, um, hard to explain and hard for people to understand. Why are you so angry? And that it's, that's an unpalatable emotion for most people. People don't want you to be angry. But you might be, and you might be for reasons that you really can't even articulate because you can't even understand. And also that it's, I mean, it it is it is chronic. People sort of expect it to kind of be over at some point, and you'd be surprised, and maybe not even, at how soon they think that would be over for you, at how soon they think, oh, like this person has moved on. And I am very anti the phrase moving on. I, I I just think that should be stricken from our vocabulary around grief and loss because you don't move on. Like you keep living, you you move forward, but these experiences remain a part of us. And during that time, and you talked about the book and launching the podcast and sort of diving in full time to all of these endeavors. And The result is, to some extent, you were known and becoming widely known for this identity of a widow. And I know that you and your best friend started the Hot Young Widows Club. So can you explain to people what that is? We do have a secret group. 
And the Heightened Widows Club is a place for people who have experienced the loss of a partner, could be a boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, husband, wife. We have people who are straight, people who are gay, people who uh, never got around to getting married or people who were divorced but still deeply affected by that loss. It is not a it's not a title that people want to wear. So I think the thing that I'm proudest of for me and Mo of having started this is if somebody wants to put, if somebody is opting in and saying, this loss is so big to me that I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a widow. I'm, I'm letting them in. So it's a, it's a safe place for you to say the things as a widow that your friends and family who have not experienced this loss yet, they're, they're not going to understand. So we already talked about your raising profile and I know you're speaking around the country. And during that time, you met your now husband, Matthew, and we're sort of quietly falling in love. And you just touched on it earlier, this notion of, quote unquote, moving on and when society deems that acceptable, which is crazy that anybody even has (laughs) a place in that conversation for people. But you've talked a lot about sharing a story on stage and this woman in the audience after during your Q&A sort of randomly raises her hand and says, Nora, are you pregnant? Walk me through that point in your life and and that experience, because I know it was complicated. Yeah, um, I met Matthew about about a year, like 50 weeks after Aaron died, and I had in my mind what probably, I mean, which I know a lot of widows have felt too, which is like, oh, you should wait a year. Uh, We get a lot of shoulds. We don't get them from other widows. We get them from people who uh, have literally no idea what they're talking about. But, and even while nobody had said that to me, like, you should wait, you should wait. I I got that. I, I had that in my head already. And I met Matthew when I was not looking for someone, which is the most annoying thing that people say, but I really wasn't. And definitely not looking for a relationship. And he was wonderful. And he had also been through his own thing. He was divorced. He was a dad. He worked a a really demanding job and was just a very, very, very involved parent and always had been. And I felt a pretty good amount of guilt and shame for being a person who could and was so sad and so heartbroken and who also was so excited when this other guy's name would pop up on my phone. It it seemed antithetical to me that I could be falling in love, which is such a such a present um, experience, and also be grieving, which seemed as if oh that's a that's a past experience. Well, no, that's a that's a that's a present experience too, and it felt as if those things were at odds. It felt as if they were not allowed to coexist, or that I would have to explain it to people. The pregnancy was not super planned, and I was afraid that. It looked too tidy. 
that people would see me and Ralph and this man and his kids and this pregnancy and think, oh God, what a good ending. What a happy ending that is. Like she's, she's moved on. It's over. When the reality was that we had this beautiful family that was coming together and Matthew became like a place for me to actually grieve because I had somebody to pick me up and I had somebody to be there with me while I fell apart. And I was experiencing this really, really deep sadness that I'd been running from while I was also falling in love with Matthew. And I love our family and I miss Aaron. And that was a hard, that's a lot of things to take in at once and sort through all at once. Any of these things are big. Losing a husband is big. Falling in love again, that's big. Having a baby is big. You know, starting starting a, a nonprofit, writing a book, all these things, these are all big experiences and they were all mixed together and it was very hard to sort them out and to also come to a place where I could say, I lost Aaron and I have this now but it wasn't a trade. I get that. I really, really get that. Like all of our lives, I guess, you know, our path and what we've experienced, the roads that lead us to where we are today. But yours was certainly dramatic in fashion, without question, right? Extraordinary loss, as you've shared in this trifecta at a young age. But when I've been digging in and learning more about your life and your journey, where you are today, so many of these things, right? Your nonprofit, your career of reaching people and storytelling, your best friend, your husband and this family you've created sort of all in a sense originated or or came through the life and the loss of Aaron. Do you ever I guess, think about that or or question why this happened to you? Um, I, I, I think about it. I think about it in like the sense I just talked about where it's like, it's hard to be grateful for something that had a pretty big price tag, but it's not a trade. It's not as if I said, okay, I'll give you universe. I'll give you a pregnancy, a dad, and a husband. And in exchange, I'll get this. That's not a trade anyone would ever make. And so um, I don't question why it it, it happened, honestly, um, because bad stuff happens every day, terrible things, all day, every day, to all kinds of people. And there's not a reason for it. Um, but I think that I mean, the life that I have now is completely unrecognizable from a life that I would have imagined in 2009 or even a life that I would have imagined in 2014 when Aaron died. I have always had all of these capabilities in me, but I didn't need them. And if I had a choice, yeah, I would have a podcast about, you know, Real Housewives of of Beverly Hills or mm-hmm. maybe about um house hunters and I would have written a book about like really you know over the top 
bosses or I would have written like a YA novel. I would have, who knows what I would have done. Maybe I would have just stayed in my cubicle and done the job that I have always done, but you get what you get and you work with what you have. And this is what I had. This is what I have. You have become this official, unofficial expert on on grief. So my question to you, and I think we all want an answer to this, especially those who haven't been through something to the degree that you have. When the shitty stuff happens, what is the right, there's no right, I guess, but but what is the best thing that you can do to show up? Whatever you can and will do to show up. So if you can physically show up and shovel someone's sidewalk in a snowstorm, that's what you do. That's what my neighbors did. If you can show up and bring somebody's child to daycare and the kid knows you and will get in your car and happily, then that's what you do. So you do the thing that you are capable of and that you will do, and preferably the thing that you will do consistently for a person. You don't ask them, what can I do? Because they don't know. They don't know. They don't know what they need and they don't know what you're capable of. So you just do a thing and you do it and you you never ask, did you get that thing? You never, you never wonder about a thank you. You do it for no gratification whatsoever. You do it fully expecting you will never, ever hear a thank you from that person. They've got so much on their minds. In fact, add in the card, don't thank me for this. How does Aaron show up for you in the world today? Often in music, I don't really listen to new music. I haven't listened to new music since Aaron died. Um, So he shows up in pop culture and songs that he's never heard uh, because they came out after he died. He showed up in this new Lady Gaga album. He shows up in the podcast Who Weekly, which obviously he would have started if if uh, he were alive because he was so good at celebrity gossip and he was so funny. Um, he shows up for me in all of our children. He and I had one child together and now I'm a parent of four children and there are bits and pieces of him and his personality in all of them. Some that they absorbed through me and some that just, I think that he just sprinkles on them from the beyond. And he shows up in the way that I move through the world. Aaron is this permanent part of me forever. What do you know about yourself today that you didn't know before 2014? Oh, that I'm... That I'm much, much more capable than any of my anxieties or fears ever told me that I was. All right. So I'm going to end with a little bit of rapid fire. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. Edge of my seat. All right. So I'm going to start with the cliche one. Totally overdone. But what is your favorite quote? It's from my friend Cole Clober's dad, Ken Clober, and it's, You're stronger than you think you are, and you can do more than you think you can. Favorite binge-worthy show? I just finished Pen15. 
And that's, that was so funny that I, it was hard for me to breathe watching it, but something that I can revisit over and over and not get sick of is Arrested Development or The Simpsons. Secret quirk only your husband knows about. Oh my God. Um, hmm. Secret quirk. I mean, I have to sleep in like full on like layers of clothing because I'm constantly freezing. <laughs> like I, I sleep in a, a matching pajama set with then a sweater on top of it. Favorite childhood cereal? Oh, Lucky Charms. No, no joke. <laughs> and current day too. Favorite child? Oh, today? Oh, I was like, today it's <laughs> today it's Ian. Today it's Ian for sure. That's our oldest. And he's just so, he's a junior and he's just, this morning he was so sweet and helpful. And I was just like, man, do you want to stay home from school? And I was like, no, that's what he wants you to do. You cannot let him stay home from school. Um, yeah, today he's my favorite. How many tattoos? Uh, I have no idea. A lot. Thing you most want people to take away from your story? That they are not just a sad story, no matter what sad thing happens to them. All right, Nora, thank you. And if you can share where we can find you and learn about all of the epic things you are doing in the world. Uh, you can find me online at norabourealis.com or on Instagram as Nora Borealis. Nora, it was awesome. Um, I fell in love with you over the podcast and now over this conversation, you've sealed the deal. So thank <laughs> you so much and, uh, stay warm in Minnesota. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it, it might snow tomorrow and where are you in sunny LA? God damn it. <laughs> so many regrets. Today's interview supports Nora's foundation still kicking. The foundation was named after a thrift store t-shirt Aaron bought in high school and was wearing the day he had a seizure that turned out to be brain cancer. As they say on the Still Kickin' website, today, these two words create a safety net for other people who find themselves going through awful things. They share their stories of struggle and strength and give them a no-strings-attached financial grant to help them get through whatever tough thing they're dealing with. To learn more about their awesome work and hear the stories of the lives they are changing, you can find them at Still Kickin', that's K-I-C-K-I-N dot co. They also sell hipster Still Kickin' t-shirts if someone you know is facing their own battle. Finally, if you haven't already, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. By subscribing, you'll know when people like Nora come on and share their story with you. As always, thank you for listening and have a great day. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.